Hello, flamethrowers. Shireen here. I want to wish you a very happy, prosperous, but above all, healthy 2022. The resolution or goal that I'm looking forward to for 2022 is to actually implement more self-care into my life. I feel like I'm going to start by not working seven days a week. I think doing this really cool thing called taking Saturday off is wonderful. And I'm going to try to channel the incredible words of Audre Lorde. Caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation, and that is an act of political warfare. When I sat down to think about what segment I would select for Best of Biad 2021, there's one episode that stood out for me. It aired on April 27, 2021, just in time for Earth Day, episode 203. This episode was incredibly important. I learned a lot from Lindsay, Brenda, and Jessica about climate change, sports, and how the two are connected. And also to quote Dr. Maddie Orr, climate change is racialized and it is gendered. Having athletes like American snowboarder Chloe Kim speak about it really, really matters. It affects her generation so intensely. We are in a time and place where athlete activism can impact social or public policy. And why wouldn't we want this from the sports world? On November 2nd, an article came out in Inside the Games. It says, nearly 80% of athletes are seriously concerned about climate change, and more than half claim it has already impacted them, according to a new survey published by World Athletics to coincide with the start of COP26 in Glasgow. And I think it's really important to start thinking about climate change, climate activism, and sports. Have a listen. So our main segment today is actually an idea from one of our flamethrowers. So we want to thank um, our all of our flamethrowers and remind you to send us ideas because we are often open to them. Um, so we got Maddie Orr, who wrote into us about, you know, thinking about Earth Day and kind of a sports and feminism and intersectional context. And uh, Maddie has recorded uh, a little bit of an intro. So we're going to hear from her to open up this segment. Hi, Burn It All Down community. My name is Maddie Orr. I'm a sport ecologist, which means I study climate change in sport. And I'm so excited to just be chatting a little bit about Earth Day and why I think it's really relevant to the women in sport context. Um, You know, when we think about Earth Day, we think about sustainability and climate change. And it's important to note that in the context of the sports sector, women are leading the way on sustainability. And this is at the professional level, at the college level, and in the lower levels of club and community sport. Um, When you look at who's taking care of really pushing the sustainability agenda and ensuring that it's inclusive and intersectional, um, you see a lot of women in that space. And, And it's really an exciting time to be working in sustainability and sport because the women are really rallying around that. We also know that, you know, climate change impacts women first and worst. And sport is no exception. If you think about, you know, how when events get canceled because of bad weather, um, often the sports sector will bend over backwards to make sure that the men's sports events get moved or postponed or pushed inside um, and the women's events just get canceled. And so I think it's really interesting to think about how Earth Day fits into this narrative, um, and to consider that when bad climate events hit and communities are traumatized, um, it's also the women who take on the emotional labor of putting that community back together. And there's no climate conversation worth having, in my opinion, 
um, or no Earth Day conversation worth having that doesn't also address those racial and gendered implications of how climate hazards hit communities and hit sports in particular, um, and how we respond to those situations and how women really are at the forefront of that, both in terms of who gets hit first and worst, and who is the first to respond. So Brenda, I want you to, as our uh, historian on on call today, um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about the history of this intersection. Uh, take us back in time a bit. So there's a whole field of philosophy and activism that generally is called ecofeminism, though people can refer to it in in a lot of different ways. Um, basically, the the woman who coined the term, Francois de Bon, who is a French philosopher and was also an anarchist, thinks about the very idea of domination and that it's a it's got to be a feminist project to think about unjustified domination. And that that is perpetuated and reflected in the way that humans have been in relationship with the environment, the earth, and animals. And so that the logic of prioritizing profit over beings, um, of exhausting resources, of depleting everything in the name of surplus, that that very idea, that that concept is at the core of patriarchy and is that very same thing is part of what continues to be the logic of um, depleting the earth's resources. So, so, so it's really kind of interesting. And, you know, we always have to be mindful of that, you know, in the global South, the women there are even further affected um, by this already and have been at the forefront um, of these movements, you know, that started in the 1970s in places like Kenya, where they were working against deforestation. So uh, it's a really interesting and exciting field that kind of, you know, continues to come up with great work. But I just think, you know, that fundamental idea about domination and the way that you're going to solve climate change has to be with like a feminist lens of thinking about exploitation, domination, and, you know, Capitalist surplus. Like, I, I hate to say it, but that's what it is. Like, you just need to consume less shit and care. Um, and there's just, that's just a thing. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's important to just kind of realize how big of an issue this is in the sports world. We know how big it is in the world world, but um, with these mega events that we love, you know, we, we talk about the problems with the way they treat uh, the unhomed, the way they treat, you know, all marginalized communities, the way they use these emergency building declarations to forget about everything. But, you know, there's so much environmental impact that these mega events have. I remember studying ones that like, and I think I actually talked to No Olympics uh, LA organizers on Burn All Down about this, was that because a lot of the stuff for the Olympics is for, counts as like kind of this emergency building, like it goes to, they don't have to do the same environmental impact studies about mm. the things that they're building. Um, and even something as little as that, that I, I had, you know, I never even thought about the way that you can use these uh, mega event 
events and the urgency that politicians put on hosting them is a way to, you know, surpass laws that the very minimum standard laws we have even right now to kind of go after this. But just kind of just like remind us where these mega events fit in. I think on some level, it's obvious, right? You think about the travel for participants and their fans, the stuff that you just mentioned, like the destruction of green land to build venues. I remember this was part of what happened in Korea. Uh, you think about, I mean, Brenda just talked about capitalist surplus. Like you think about the amount of trash that a mega event is going to produce when you bring all these people into a concentrated space. Um it just seems obvious on its face when you really start to think of it through this lens, as Brenda was talking about, as you were talking about, lens, you really do start, <laughs> like it makes your, I don't know, all the hairs on your arm stand up for like what this means to the environment. And I think about like last week we talked about in episode 202, the particular issues with playing soccer in Qatar, considering the extreme temperatures in the country, like talk about the environment's impact on the sport itself. But we also mentioned Qatar back in, uh, in 2019, when the IAAF championships were there and all of the issues around mm. extreme temperature then, and they were trying to air condition outdoor stadiums <laughs> in order to make it possible to do these events. And you think about like, if this is the future is to just air condition a bunch of these massive spaces like that alone. I don't know, like mega events seem like the perfect distillation as they do for lots of things to think about these problems that that sports is participating in. Yeah, and it, it's it's from the big, like the air conditioners to all the little resources they they bring up, you know, water bottles and stuff like that. And, you know, to go back to Maddie's point, like these mega events are often really big drivers, you know, for women's sports. And yet, like if we do lose mega events, it's so bad for women's sports in theory. And yet there's no way to really do these sustainably. And so that's a really big problem. Um, I do want to mention something that's going on on kind of the global scale. Um, there is a United Nations Climate Change Sports for Climate Action Framework. Um, and a couple of other organizations signed on to it on this Earth Day. Uh, World Athletics and organizers for the World Athletics Indoor Championships uh, in Belgrade 22 signed on to this. Uh, the aim of the framework is for international federations, leagues, clubs, and event organizers to take collective action to limit global warming to the 1.5 Celsius degree rise, the levels agreed at in Paris during the climate change conference in 2015. Um, you know, the United Nations is really, I think it's interesting that they're organizing these, you know, seeing the role that sports have to play in this. But anytime it's, you know, Sebastian Coe and other, you know, of these leaders that haven't really shown us any reason to believe in that they mean what what they say. I look at events like this with a lot of skepticism, although I do think one of the things that makes me somewhat hopeful is the voices of the youth. Jess? 
Yeah. So as Maddie mentioned at the top of the segment, climate change is racialized and it's gendered. And so it makes sense when we get to public advocacy that we'd see people of color and women and especially women of color speaking about the effects of climate change and that it turns out that dynamic is true when it comes to athletes. So I want to play a couple clips from the 2019 United Nations Youth Climate Summit. First, here is gold medalist snowboarder. We love her. Chloe Kim. She's talking about her fears about climate change. I'm so terrified that one day when I have a family, my kids are going to be like, Mom, what's snow? Is that like when the dinosaurs were around? So we have to keep fighting to save our planet. Some people won't listen, but we need to make them listen before it's too late. To everyone here, I wanted to tell you guys that you have a voice and never lose hope. We will make this change and we will save our home. And next is Pita Taufatifua, a two-sport Olympian from Tonga who competed in both taekwondo and skiing. Now, Tonga is composed of 170 islands in the South Pacific, and I think that's an important context for what he spoke about at the summit. We're at the forefront of climate change. The seas are rising. They're, they're coming into our houses. You know, I'm here to advocate for the oceans that have looked after us since the beginning of time. You know, it's time for us to be looking after them. We've got young kids who are marching to help the planet. I mean, we, ha- we need to listen to these. Uh, we need to listen to these kids. It's their future that, that's in our hands. Malo Ofatu. And I'd just like to mention that there's another global organization that is focused on these issues and was particularly focused on the environment for Earth Day this year, Lareas, which is a global organization that has over 200 sports programs in 40 countries in the world. They put out a new environmental action toolkit, and it's pretty cool. Uh, We'll link to it in the show notes on our website. It talks about how to launch and sustain a green team, what organizations can do collectively, what individuals, players, fans can do, and it provides a ton of resources. It's a great checklist for people within sporting organizations from like the top of the chain owners down to the fans who want to figure out how to make sport more sustainable. Uh, So it's really cool to see that we are now getting resources like this. It's literally a checklist. So you could just go down and check what it is that you're doing and not doing. And you can think about the ways that you could be more sustainable as an athlete and as a fan. I love that so much. Brenda, what are we seeing clubs doing right now? Yeah, it's it's really interesting because I'm going to just be honest, like when I, I get so overwhelmed about this topic and I just feel like it seems terrible and scary and boring to start to like research it somehow. (laughs) Yeah. Cause it's too big. You can't like wrap your arms around it in a way that feels, it's so easy to like suddenly just tune out when, as soon as you start looking at it, I agree. Exactly. And, and so it's like earth day and then it feels like already co-opted and gimmicky and I'm depressed and I don't know what you know, I know what my problem is, which is that this is horrific and apocalyptic. And thus, I want to do a show about something else. And so when I started to look at what some of the football clubs were doing, it really is actually very exciting and smart. And it makes me feel the opposite. So a couple of things. Um, David Goldblatt has written a lot about this. He's been doing a lot of articles since 2019. He's a very well-known, you know, writer about football. And this has become his new um, raison d'etre, right? This is his, this is Dave's thing. And so it's good to check him out. He's written pamphlets for different alliances, like transportation alliances that are trying to reduce the carbon footprint. 
Um, but here's some of the things. Uh, one of the most exciting is a club called Forest Green Rovers. It's a professional football club. You can check them out. They play in like uh, the fourth tier of English football. And uh, they've been around since the 19th century. And they have gone UN certified zero carbon admissions. They only serve vegan food. Their new stadium is wooden. And they have 100% renewable energy use. And it's real cool. Like the stadium is beautiful. And um, and they did it with absolutely no footprint on the environment. Of course, it cannot be 80,000 seats. There are things you just can't have. And, you know, so it's like a 5,000 seater. And it's like, right, but cool. You know, 5,000 people is a lot of people. I mean, you know, I've been with nobody during COVID. Especially if you pack them in. Yeah. You know, can't do that right now, but soon. Um, You know, soon, soon, soon. And so it's really gorgeous. I encourage you um, to take a look. Also, the Bundesliga, um, the clubs in Bundesliga are trying to figure out how to subsidize uh, public transportation. And that's mm. huge because of all the of all the way that global football impacts the environment, it's the travel. Yeah. Um, UEFA is offsetting um, the aviation emissions by reforestation programs. And so that's really exciting, too. But all of this is, you know, really easy to get out of for some of these big organizations. So I liked looking at the clubs and it, it actually put a little spring in my step. And I thought to myself, I wonder what we can do at youth level soccer here in the U.S. We better start carpooling and stuff. <laughs> it didn't make me think like, wait a minute. <laughs> well, it's so interesting you say that because I've been thinking so much about how COVID, you know, in a lot of ways, what we learned from sports during COVID is that they're much more flexible than these billionaire owners would have you believe, right? That change is so much more possible um, when it's necessary. And there was so much less travel during COVID. And so many of these leagues found ways to do things in single sites or even the NBA finding ways to limit their flights, right? If you go to one one part of the country, like you're playing back-to-backs, you know, against teams and you're not traveling quite as much. And you know, stuff like that makes me really, you know, I, I don't think it's uh it's sustainable or like mentally healthy for these teams and clubs to have bubble seasons. But what about mitigating the travel as much as possible, you know, within these seasons, you know, and trying to find ways that buses can be taken and the travel schedule makes geographical sense and results in fewer cross country or, you know, inner country. And when we're talking about over in Europe, you know, flights um, and everything. And I hope that lessons like that do carry forward, right, with us, um, because that could make a big difference. Um, Jess, there was another uh, interesting kind of COVID adaptation we have here. <laughs> yeah, but it was. it's also a great example of the way that sports can encourage better local environmentalism, right? And so there was a a club in Belgium, a soccer club in Belgium, uh, when they can't fill the stands, they decided instead to fill it with a bunch of old electronics in order to teach the community that these are things that can be recycled. So it was a big messaging about the importance of recycling, but you should, we'll link to this in the show notes, you should go look. It's really cute to see a lot of washers and refrigerators, and some of them were set up so they looked kind of like Wally. 
uh, the little robot. So it was a it was a cute initiative, but the the point was to encourage recycling within the local community. So I liked that idea of using sport in that way in this moment. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very you know going forward. We've seen so much activism um, on racial and gender justice from our athletes and it's probably unfair to like put this on them or to like hope that they um you know incorporate this perfectly but i want to because of the power they have um you know to continue to intersect climate justice as part of this activism because we know that the most marginalized communities are, again, the ones who are disproportionately impacted by climate change. And, you know, we've already seen, I know Renee Montgomery um, was on some panels last year um, about racial and climate justice. Um, you have Midge Purse over in the NWSL, who is a climate activist and NWSL player and is on the Harvard board trying to um, be part of, you know, climate change initiatives. And, you know, most recently we've seen the WNBA take on um, as they are continuing, you know, their activism um, they're doing, you know, health campaigns and trying to encourage people to get the vaccine, um, especially um, those in Black communities. And um, I do have faith that they're going to continue to lead us forward on the climate front as well, because um, they're so well organized and they seem to understand intersectionality better than any other group. And I think that um, ultimately, though, we're going to need the athletes to use their voices to fight for this stuff as well within the sports world, you know, and not just those young athletes kind of speaking at the global conferences, but the, the biggest ones, you know, encouraging, you know, calling out their sponsors and their team owners and everything to um, include sustainability um, as part of these platforms. Um, again, it's I think it's unfair that that burden falls to them. But maybe the reason I'm calling them out is because I have the most hope that they can make the change happen as opposed to these, you know, billionaires at top just like sitting on their wad of Cash. One thing, though, that really interested me that I would have completely missed if I wasn't researching this um, is that there is a um, team in Dublin, Bohemians, which has been a member-owned team since 1890. This is a men's soccer team, and they've done a lot of um, messaging, welcoming refugees and anti-racism work. And they've recently hired... Um, world football's first climate justice officers. So they have someone making sure that their team is focused on leaving the smallest carbon footprint possible. And this is Sean McCabe. And I'm very interested in seeing what comes. It's a voluntary role, of course, right now. Um, but it's about um, activating the community um, holding the community responsible, holding the club responsible, and keeping all the focus on uh, climate justice. Uh, they've been calling uh, football's first Greta Thunberg, of course. That's CNN's uh, title. We're sensationalizing things a bit. But I'm going to include this 
article from CNN in the notes because I think it's very interesting. And I think goes with what I was saying before that I hope something along these lines is the way that these clubs continue to prioritize this. Um, Jess? Yeah. And before we head out, I just want to remind everyone, we talked about uh, the intersection of climate change and sport back in episode 172. I think we're all very proud of that episode. And so I encourage people who care about this to go into um, our archives and check out episode 172. And of course, we recently talked about the impact of the environment on refugee populations and the intersection of refugees and sport in episode 199. So I know we'll continue to talk about this as we move forward. Absolutely. And Um, You know, just to echo what we heard from Maddie at the beginning, this is going to and already is going to disproportionately impact women's sports. And so um, because we know that these billionaires are willing to do anything to fight for the preservation of men's sports in the face of anything. And so it's just important to kind of pay attention to where uh, what's happening on this front in the sports world. We're going to bring um, back Dr. Orr, who is highlighting a couple of organizations that are doing the work of bringing sports and climate change together. Protect Our Winters has an amazing roster, a ton of women on that athlete roster who go into schools on a regular basis, go and lobby at the federal government in Washington, D.C., um, and advocate for climate action that is really considerate of all of those intersectional aspects of how women get hit first, how people of color get hit first, um, and how we can do a better job in the sports community and in the outdoor community of making our space more inclusive and also making it more resilient to climate change. Um, Another organization that's really amazing and doing cool work lately is Eco Athletes. Uh, It's based in New York, but they have athletes really all over the country. And, you know, you have Mara Abbott, who competed in cycling at the Rio 2016 Olympics, and Elena Olson on the U.S. women's rugby team, a number of women who really stand out and are out in their communities, um, helping to take care of the community after major events happen, but also at the forefront of demanding action from the sport industry and demanding um, consideration for things like reducing our energy use and reducing water use and being more considerate of the biodiversity where we live, work, and play. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to start hiring today. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Indeed. 
for my interview selection for Best of Burn It All Down 2021. I'm going with Dr. Amira Rose Davis, joined by Dr. Candace Smith, Dr. Courtney Cox, and Dr. Brooklyn Gibson. This episode aired on October 7th, 2021. This roundtable was phenomenal. Our very own Amira brought some dope Black women academics together to talk about vaccine, the NBA, and the way in which the conversations about Black men and health are being contorted to suit a particular narrative. On social media and discussion boards, it was so important to tie it all together. And I loved the way that they spoke and bounced ideas off each other and agreed I found it informative and necessary as we continue on in a pandemic. So it's been a week, another week of just a a mess. Uh, Much ado about public uh, comments made by a handful of NBA players. Um, But the ensuing discussion about those comments also left me wanting more. And by more, I meant amazing, brilliant Black women to really parse this out with. Um, And so I am joined on this dope roundtable today by friend of the show, Courtney Cox, Always a pleasure to have Courtney here. Y'all know her um, from the many times we will have a conversation here. She's an assistant professor in Indigenous Race and Ethnic Studies department over at University of Oregon. Um, But we also decided to spice some things up and give you a little bit more today. So we are uh, uh, so thrilled to also be joined by Dr. Brooklyn Gibson, who's an ACLS Drive Distinguished Postdoctoral Fellow in Digital Humanities at the University of Illinois. Um, And that is amazing because that fellowship life is where it's at. (laughs) And also uh, joined today by Dr. Candace Smith, who's an Associate Professor of Political Science at Duke University. So we are suited and rooted and ready to kind of put some stuff on the table and and muck our way through it. I basically just want to start by saying me, I know I I know group chats are popping uh, for a number of reasons, but the one that I keep coming back to is when Courtney told me, right, of some of the research that NBA players were saying they were doing, talking about vaccination, including Trump speeches and Black history. And when I thought about this discussion, it was like the intersection of a a half understanding of of Black history and, and medical violence and hesitancy, some major disinformation, some language about my body, my choice, which feels especially as somebody who can give birth in Texas, not something that should ever be out of people's mouths who it's coming out of. Um, And then also just about why there's so many people, especially white people are ready to, again, use Black athletes for their own kind of political conversations. Like what happened to Shut Up and Dribble now? Like now everybody's like, and also just like at the end of the day, if Ted Cruz is co-signing your tweets, like what else do you do in your life then? Like, I think you should just log off. So that's, that's I know where I'm kind of entering it, where every day I was kind of just face palming. But I just wanted to know as the conversation was unfolding, what was your initial reaction, Court? I'll start with you to kick it off. Yeah. So for me, one of the things that really stands out, I've been sitting, I mean, NBA media day, there was, there was so much there. And from someone that has worked with a team um, on the WNBA side and someone that used to work 
in media and media day, knowing the kind of bonanza around that, I was just cringing all day. I was like, we cannot let anyone else speak on the mic, you know? And I think that there's an interesting dynamic that I thought about. It made me think about the locker room, right? How there's that dissension. We always talk about, you know, people that tell athletes to stick to sports are always worried about the locker room dynamic, right? Folks are always worried about if there are queer athletes, you know, what's going to happen in the locker room. There's all the ways that the locker room's weaponized, but I don't think that we're talking enough about, like, I would feel a way as a professional athlete, if I'm in the locker room with you, I'm showering with you, I'm traveling with you, and I have, you have the audacity to be unvaccinated. And I have a kid at home, you know, I have my partners there, my, maybe I'm taking care of an elder. Like, I, I think about how much I will be on the verge of fighting everyone all the time, if I'm, if I'm an athlete, for sure. The other thing that really stuck with me is Draymond Green, which we can talk about all the things Draymond has said in the past that let me know he's not the person (laughs) that I'm going to with any kind of authority. But the thing that Draymond said, he accused the vaccinated of just being, quote unquote, so pressed. Like, why are y'all so pressed? Why are y'all trying to force your beliefs on me? Right. And so the idea of the fact that folks that are vaccinated and advocating for folks getting vaccinated the fact that we're quote unquote pressed, right? As hundreds of thousands of people have died in this country as a reason to not get the vaccine. Like, oh, if, if people are pushing it, I don't want it. It's like, this is not like a food trend. <laughs> this is not this is not a fashion trend. This is not something that is being pushed on. It's like the idea of calling folks pressed is a thing I've been really sitting with because that logic, there's so many logics that are at play here, whether we're talking about religion, whether we're talking about research, right? There's so many things that have been weaponized, but the idea of calling people pressed when we have a global health crisis is the thing that keeps me up at night. I'm not going to lie to you. Yeah, for real. I feel that. And Brooklyn, I want to toss it to you as our uh, resident digital space expert, because like when Courtney's saying, quote unquote, research, right? A lot of that is like, (laughs) where are you? What meme did you just read that you're now parroting on with this huge platform, right? Like what role is this information playing here? Right. And I was I was going to jump in anyway, because that is how I'm kind of relating into it. That's where I'm coming into this content, right? Like I'm not in the sports space, but I'm seeing these headlines and I'm going, okay, here's another avenue where um, people are kind of making fun of black men, pathologizing black men for the most part. And that's kind of stressful for me. So I'm like tuning into it, but it's, it's so infuriating on multiple levels for me, the way um, the, the COVID thing is playing out in the media, because there's always this, conversation about these people are just dumb or not smart or not educated and no one is paying attention to what is happening in the social media realm for everyone this is not just athletes this is not just black folks this is not just men there's something happening right we can look to january 6th we can also look to this facebook whistleblower stuff which is happening right now to say there's something bigger right so if people are being this ridiculous on the internet i mean not even on the internet just being this ridiculous in life we need to go back a little bit and think about Where are they getting this information from? Why do they all sound like they're saying the exact same thing in a different way? You know, so I kind of leaned in on on that because I always want to acknowledge that there is the problem with mis and disinformation is that there's always a little truth mixed in with it. Right. That's what makes it believable. That's what makes people connect to it. But we have to acknowledge that and also acknowledge that this isn't just simply a problem with, about education, about media literacy. It's about the digital ecosystem that we all live in that is uh, privileging engagement, 
right? The content that's the most controversial, the most, oh, the consp- I love a good conspiracy theory, y'all. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but like, I kind of have a little bit more of the contextual background and, and knowledge to not get taken up by some of these conspiracy theories, you know? But we have to think about that. These platforms that everyone is on, these social media platforms are literally gamified to promote certain types of information, usually the most incendiary, wild, out there conspiracy theories. So it's not that these people are not smart, they're not educated, they just need media literacy. We actually need to look at these social media platforms. And that's what I kept coming back to. Yeah, no, for real. And I think that like that point about pathology is is such a big deal, right? Because one Mm -hmm. of the things that, you know, me and Courtney talked about noticing, right? And when the NFL players were saying some of the same stuff, it was like, well, they have CTE, right? Or like now it's like, well, what do you expect? They never passed their classes in college. And like how quickly people slip into like anti-Blackness and reverberating Mm -hmm. tropes about perceptions of athletes or if you want to talk about medical harm like yeah let's talk about cte but not in a way to like be dismissive and and render them disposable but candace i want to turn to you to talk about politics for a second because obviously this is coming on the heels of a period of time in which that platform that you're talking about brooklyn is also amplified because we're talking about athletes and we know that black entertainers have historically um been Uh, on oversized platforms because that's one of the only lanes in which white people have interfaced, whether it's singing, dancing, athletics, especially. And so they've already had this kind of spotlight on them. And I saw a tweet that I really want, I was thinking about yesterday where people were like, yo, people don't realize that movements in the 60s and 70s, political education was core to that. Whether you're talking about activists in Detroit who were like in union spaces with pamphlets, like literally reading books, like actually reading books, right? Um, And learning things up if they were going to lead. And it's something... That I want to get to the WNBA in, in a second, but one of the things that has set the W apart is that when they got onto their platform, the first thing they did is get on a Zoom call with people like Kimberly Crenshaw, right? And so one of the things I wanted to ask you, Candace, is like, how do we think about the intersection of like sports and politics in the last few years? And then, like, you know, of course you have politicians who have long been saying shut up and dribble, who are all of a sudden like your body, your choice, and da 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 And it's like, I mean, Ted, that tweet is what really took me out, to be honest, from Ted Cruz. Because first of all, you've spent a million years saying, shut up and dribble. And now all of a sudden you stand with all of them. And on top of that, you have the audacity to put a hashtag, your body, your choice, when there's millions of women here, millions of, of childbearing people here in Texas who would like a fucking word about choice and bodies. And so that was too much for me to bear. And I feel like in the intersection of that, Candace, is a story about the way people are engaging politically and who have become seen as like the political actors um, who have this kind of platform. And like, how do we where does political education fall into that? Like, how do we make sense of any of this? Well, one thing that stands out to me, and you all as experts in this area will have to explain it more to me, is that my my understanding is that like 95, 90 to 95% of people in the NBA are vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's something to the fact that um, we are making a whole lot, granted, There is a whole lot to be said about the folks who aren't vaccinated because they're just being so loud and there's a lot of attention put toward them. But, you know, I think there's something to be said about 
which people we use and which people politicians use um, to prop up their own messages, right? So Ted Cruz is not saying, hey, turns out the overwhelming majority of NBA players, and I think 100% of WNBA athletes are vaccinated, right? They're picking off the few um, as like like trophies, right? And they will use them as long as they are helpful. I mean, but we see this all the time. And I will say, you know, politicians, and I, I feel safe to say conservative politicians are expert at manipulating a narrative in a way that kind of um, like just turns a thing that it wasn't into something <laughs> that, you know, they, they, they will make a whole new truth out of, you know, a, a, out of a little sample, right? And so in this case, Kyrie Irving, let me t- say this. I just, let me preface this for your, for your audience and also for this wonderful group here is that I don't know anything about basketball and I don't know anything about Kyrie Irving and everything that I know about him, I've learned unwillingly <laughs> through things like this. And so I think, you know, we just have to keep in mind, like, why is it that we are putting this small group of people on a pedestal? Who is giving them space? Who is pointing to them as people that they, you know, are like patriots and examples of freedom? Um, and and when those people are going to be turned on as soon as they, you know, make a left turn on Black Lives Matter or if they make a left turn on this abortion case, or if they make a left turn on, you know, transgender issues, so on and so forth. Yeah, I think that's precisely it is like, and and I'm glad you brought that up. The NBA is now approaching 96.5% vaccination, right? And the W is, I think, at 99.8. Like, they are very close to 100%. And they made that part of their commitment going into the season that they were going to talk about medical disparities, uh, really address COVID, and do drives to not only vaccinate the entire league, but their communities that they also play and labor in. Um, But I think that thing to me that's overwhelming, I think, about it is that feeling of disposability, is that feeling of symbol, which is not a surprise because obviously that's what I kind of look at. But how can you not feel objectified if the same people who were, you know, clowning on Kyrie Irving when he was talking about the world is flat are now like holding him up as like, he's a genius. He's speaking the truth. Like y'all don't. And I'm like, you just, what? You can't have it both ways. It's like a paper doll. Like if it fits you that day, it works. And then for me, of course, it is bothersome because you you kind of cease to see humanity and you don't let people kind of muddle through it and struggle. And, you know, I'm glad that people have been publicly receptive to push back on some of the things that they're saying. But it's it's frustrating, right, that this it, this does become the conversation. We know, right, the kernel of truth here is a long history of, of medical violence on marginalized communities. And we know that, but that even that history is diluted and passed down in a way where like people will cite Tuskegee. And I mean, every time you cite Tuskegee to talk about COVID, a historian somewhere just like lays out on the floor, right? Because it's like literally the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> like, you were not getting inoculated. Um, and so that's really frustrating. But I think that it's not just this like kernel of like truth in Black history, right? It's also this way that they become, like you were saying, Candace, they become the people that are doing this. It's like when Prop 8 happened in California, it was like Black religious voters. I was like, do you know math though? 
Like that just, that can't be a thing. And I think of that, especially that in Texas, it's like the large, we know throughout all of this, despite the way that people want to make black vaccination hesitancy, the story, the, like the biggest demographic is like white Republicans chilling. So I think that is also part of this conversation. Can, um, Courtney, there's a lot of C's right now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so one of the things I'm thinking about when I'm hearing you say that, and I, I, I really love what Candace is bringing in here. I also see on the other side, right? So everyone, I'm seeing folks that say, hey, we knocked Laura for saying, you know, shut up and dribble, but maybe she had a point, right? So thinking about the flip side of that is folks that are like, oh, I love when athletes were speaking out for Black Lives Matter, but now when they're anti-vaxxers, like like you said, very much becoming the symbol where I'm seeing Black folks say, ooh, maybe Kyrie should shut up and dribble, right? And I'm thinking, so we only want athlete voice when it perfectly aligns with us, and yet we can critique that hypocrisy from the right. But even as we're doing it, we are making them symbols too. Even I'm seeing Black folks do that. I'm seeing folks that otherwise I would be really shocked, but there's a way that they become... Anyways, this punching bag, right, where, I, you know, the question I saw from one media member, I'm not going to say his name because people raked him over the coals for this tweet, but he said, do y'all talk about athletes, do y'all talk to y'all's family members that are unvaccinated the way you're talking about these athletes? And everyone was like, yes, it's worse because we care that much, right? So there's a way that Black folks, we, we can find humor anywhere. Um, But there's a way that there's a specific thing that I'm thinking about in terms of how these athletes are rendered so disposable. Like we loved the BLM thing, but now you're not saying what's on brand for how I feel. Right. And so now I have to throw you away. Disposability feels like a really big piece of that. I hear where you're coming from and I had to think through this too, but I think the difference here is that Black Lives Matter, like these, like Black Lives Matter is a movement for the dignity and full human rights and for citizenship of Black people. That is something that all of us can talk about. Voting. We are citizens. We are people who should be able to have access to rights. COVID and vaccines. That's not our area of expertise. So that's why they have to (laughs) shut up because it's not their area of expertise. LeBron James, apparently one of the only other people that I know, is vaccinated. And it's fine. If he says something, great. If he doesn't, fine. Because the fact of the matter is, is that all he needs to do is to say, I listened to what Dr. Fauci said. Or whomever, whoever your doctor is, your primary care person, your trusted expert, who's a scientist, because the question at hand is about science, not about civil rights, not about civil liberties. So I think that's I think that's the difference here is is that their opinion matters little because they have no expertise. And I think that this is like actually I'm I'm in Brooklyn I want to talk to you about this overall kind of thing about information in covid. Mm-hmm. How do we think about even what expertise gets to be in how we all think through information these days. But before mm-hmm. I uh, we I throw that to you, the thing that I did want to say is that I want to shout out David Dennis Jr., who has a great piece for The Undefeated Today about COVID being a social justice issue, mainly in response to LeBron saying, like, we're not talking about social justice here. We're talking about, like, people's body and choice. But David's piece I really enjoyed. Um, shout out to you, David. 
because what he did in that piece is he said, no, actually, this is social justice. And he breaks down in his piece the way that environmental racism, medical racism, like all these things compound to think about access to the vaccine, areas hit hardest by COVID, who's still impacted. And he was like, actually, when you're talking about this, that, and the other thing, when you're talking about voting rights and politicians are, you know, refusing mask mandates in schools, when you're talking about access to healthcare for various things, and this is like really when I want to shout out the WNBA, because when they did their platform about medical disparities, they started in local communities to talk about access to healthcare. And of course, COVID was a part of that, but they started from a framework of this is an extension of what we mean by say her name. This is an extension about um, the rights and dignities of black people because we're understanding what do they need. And like, that was the jump that was articulated. And I think one of the things I hear you saying, Candice, too, is that the way that they're entering the conversation, right, feels like a disruption to these other conversations they're having. And I think what's interesting about like David's piece or what the W's did is they modeled how it doesn't have to be a disruption, but that it does rely on decentering your own experience about your body and thinking more about public health. And that's kind of what I want to turn to you now, Brooklyn, because I saw uh, Howard, Howard had a tweet that he was like, the problem with public health is that we've been privatizing everything and there's not actually a public, right? I think about this with Candace's point about expertise. Cause I think 10 years ago, talking about expertise, it would have been easier to be like, yeah, that, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I'm not a epidemiologist. I can barely say the word. But now it's like post-facts, post-truth, post-experts almost. You know, we all get called in to be talking heads at times. But we know it doesn't matter because there's still going to be Joe Schmo in the comments, you know, who watched History Channel and read 2.5 Wikipedia articles and therefore knows more than my four degrees. So, you know, Brooklyn, how do we deal with this question of uh, knowledge production and and dissemination in this moment? I wish I could. I'm literally thinking about this. Like, what is the quickest way to answer this question? Because this is literally the through line of all of my research, right? I focus primarily on thinking about disinformation and misinformation in Black social media spaces. And one of the things that I'm grappling with in my work is like, since the beginning of, I can't say since the beginning of time, I'm not an undergrad. Okay, throughout (laughs) a lot of uh, Black history, like going back as far as like Carter G. Woodson and the creation of Negro History Week, as soon as that became a program we got these, uh, what do they call them? Intellectual charlatans, people who wanted to capitalize on the ex- the excitement and the interest in Black history and Black culture who began to throw events, but they weren't actually doing the work, right? Fast forward to today, we're in these social media spaces where we have those same people doing that, but now they have um, these social media platforms behind them, the blue checks and all these things that make them seem and it feel more official than they actually are. Um, it's it's terrifying, right? Because when you um, are a part of a, commu- a community that has less access to in- education, I'm not saying these people are not smart. They they might just be less formally educated, but all they know is 
to be distrustful of certain systems, it makes it hard for you to go to an expert and understand expertise, right? So we see a lot of people speaking about uh, bodily autonomy and talking about this issue in terms of how it affects them personally and not the collective group because they don't have a language or a larger framework to think through these things. And that's so hard for me because I'm constantly wanting to jump through my screen and like choke people. Like this is not how research is conducted. You know, Google, um, you know, shout out to Dr. Sophia Noble. Google is not a library. The genius. <laughs> it, the, the MacArthur genius. It is, Google is just going to feed you what is most popular. And it's also biased by the words you put in. So if it's like, should I trust the vaccine? You're going to get a certain set of results based off that. So the problem is so compounded and impacted by this social media um, or these digital platforms and people having no understanding of what actual research looks like, but then also having real reasons to not trust institutions, right? Like if someone is 86 and they don't go to the doctor, we know there's a reason why our, you know, 86-year-old grandfather won't go to the doctor. You know, there's things- we're 33 and how many <laughs> horror stories can we probably share? We could turn this into a, a, a you know, whole new episode to talk about medical malpractice mm-hmm. and like navigating the healthcare system as Black women. Like I think that that's, Absolutely a kernel. (laughs) Right. But the problem is like people are not sitting there and actually doing the work. And I think it's so important what you said about like, you know, 60s movements having a political education component. You know, I I love Fred Hampton's quote about how like if you just bring people into the movement, they'll just be happy because you got things to give them. Everybody's hungry. Everybody needs something. But if you don't educate them, they'll come around wanting more and more and just become, you know, Negro imperialists. This is the term that he used. And I think about that a lot because what I'm seeing in the social media space is people saying they're studying, you know, Black history. And I looked at these Trump speeches or whatever it is, but it's just like, that's not a reliable source. You know, that's one source. That's one internet artifact in a whole world of things that you should probably be looking at to think about the language. And like the sheer amount of work it takes, <laughs> you know, to be educated on any topic, COVID, sports, whatever it is, it's a lot of work. And I think, you know, all of us in this room, we have PhD, so we know what that looks like. But folks outside of that don't see it that way. They're more like, you know, I'm more into, we see a lot of people who are engaged with like wellness spaces and social media coming over and, and being more like, the vibes are wrong. I'm not really feeling it, you know? And there's a lot to be said about experiential knowledge. You know, I never want to devalue um people and their gut feelings or intuition and things like that. But we have to trust experts. We have to have an understanding of what expertise is. I feel like throughout this whole entire like COVID thing, I've been so frustrated at just arguing with family members and friends through like just old school logical fallacies, right? Just because two things are happening at the same time don't mean that they're related, you know? And you get people saying the government and this vaccine, it's like, well, the scientists you know, played a role. And, you know, we can think about this more quick critically, but it's so hard when we're starting at mm-hmm. social media. We, we can't start at social media. We can't start at influencer culture. We have to go a little bit further and educate ourselves um, critically from books, scholars, experts. And that'll give us the language to really understand and see this stuff. But I mean, that also is not something that can be acquired, you know, in, in two yeah. Google searches and, and an hour on YouTube. It can't. It will never. And in fact, YouTube is going to likely feed you stuff that is going to anger you because they make a lot of money when you're upset or when you're scared. 
um, and likely going to take you into a dark path that's going to lead you further away from actual information. Courtney, I want to ask you about sports media. And and part of the reason I convened this roundtable to have this conversation is very similar to the way that I return to these spaces that I cultivate with other Black women scholars to talk about many things um, that feels insufficient in other quarters. Um, this is coming on yet another heel, you know, yet another week of of talk about uh, conspiracies, right? Like about R. Kelly or about Cosby or, you know, like where it is, it's frustrating. And yet there's something different about, you know, people sharing a clip from the boondocks and saying, oh, boondocks got it right. And then watching, you know, Black women be pathologized when they're working through, you know, like, what does it mean to call somebody in, right, instead of calling them out? And it feels hard to do that, especially in a sports media landscape where you can see how, Candace, you asked before, why is this the focus? Well, it's ready made for the sports media landscape that we have now. This can be scrolling on ESPN all day. And then if we're thinking, okay, well, who's leading off the jump that just got canceled because we know some shit went down, right? Like who who is in that space to actually have the depth of the conversation to do it? It's all about sound bites, right? It's I mean, I was proud of Clinton Yates who got on around the horde and was like, this is foolish because it takes a lot to actually disrupt what, you know, you're like supposed to say in these in these spaces, especially in mixed company. Like, and so Courtney, like part of one of the reasons we get these headlines and part of one of the reasons we get these snippets of conversation without being able to like actually critique without pathologizing or put it in the, these larger contexts is because of who is in the control room, who are at the, you know, desks. This is similar, obviously in, in like what you look at, in, in politics, Candace, in terms of like who's who's in the room where it happens. And I think in sports media, this, this conversation, it's so clearly um, lacking, right, from the ability to even have the depth of care in which it needs to court. Yeah. So I think about this idea of working from the individual, right, and why that works for BLM, right? Because they weren't coming with expertise or research there either, right? But the difference, you know, I I think as Candace pointed out, is like, they came from, this has been my personal experience with racism. And it's really powerful narratives, right? Same as if we shared our experience with the medical industry, right? As non-medical experts. And so where it falls flat is whenever athletes are asked to speak on something that is outside that frame, right? And like you said, that becomes a thing that circulates constantly. So when LeBron's statements about Hong Kong and China go viral, right? Again, outside the lane of uh, of what he knows. And people are like, I'm so disappointed in LeBron. He talked about all this Black Lives Matter and fighting and protests, and he won't stand with Hong Kong. It's like, see, we stepped outside of his individual expertise, right? When, as you said, we've seen time and time again, Women athletes, especially Black women athletes, are like, okay, we don't have the answers, but we'll find someone that does. And they'll help us set up a public health drive. They'll help us set up a way to connect with the mothers of women that were killed by police, right? So this idea um, of being able to do it all, the way that masculinity is working across these spaces is something that we don't talk about nearly enough. And partially because the misinformation, disinformation, and political education are, to me, really, really important. 
So how this all gets picked up when, as you mentioned, so important, we're talking about a small percentage of the league, right, at this point. But NBA media day becomes the thing where when do we really care what Bradley Beal is talking about? Honestly. honestly. Yeah, what was that one tweet that was like, NBA superstar, who do they say? Mike. Yeah, I'm like, oh, we're talking about And somebody stars? was like, there's many things I object to here, but calling him a superstar is where I draw the line. <laughs> it, it's the equivalent, you know, Super Bowl media day is very similar. Like the, the, you know, the ones you never hear from, everyone gets to speak, right? Um, and again, I think this is a thing. I feel like if you have a voice, good, bad, ugly, and you want to express it, the the difference is I think what what we're really nailing down is the difference of expertise. So it's I, to me it's reckless when ESPN or any other network allows these things to go unchecked. When journalists who are at media day do not push back when athletes say these kinds of things, right? And so I don't want to hear from journalists who are at media day and didn't have a follow up get on the internet and slam these athletes because there's an opportunity. We're letting things go unchecked. We're letting these people give these tirades or make these binaries between religion and science and whatever else they're throwing out, right? And so here we are talking about Bradley Beal and Andrew Wiggins when we otherwise would not be, to be very, very honest, right? And so thinking about um, what it means when a Draymond and then LeBron jump in and co-sign, it does something very, very different, right? And so I think that I'm most frustrated by the way that I was trained as a journalist. I feel like I've been failed by so many journalists across pandemic in general, right? In terms of what we allow to go unchecked. Our role as journalists in providing the levity, interviewing the experts, giving full perspective. Instead, we're seeing these articles that are just about letting the flagrant takes fly, completely unchecked, when we could be going to, I don't know, this this group of four offers something, right? Um, or all these other medical experts, media experts, um, folks that know what's going on within these within these web spaces. And so I think it's really, to me, irresponsible on the fact of a lot of a lot of journalists that aren't checking these things or offering other perspectives or pushing back in a particular way. Instead, it's just the flashy soundbite, which makes them no better than the Google that's just bringing you in for either the outright the outrage or the the cosine. Right. It's exactly the same. So I, I would like to leverage the fact that I'm here with you three to ask if, if it's OK to, to ask a question. And, my, you know, my thought is and I thought that your point earlier, Amira, about how the entry point here could also be a social justice entry point, entryway. And thinking, you know, historically about Black athletes, but also Black politics, generally speaking, is rooted in and centers community and community well-being and that everyone has to be doing well in order for me to say that I'm doing well, too. And so I guess in some ways I am thrown off. A little ways as I I think this is predictive, like everyone's not always going to do what you want them to do. But it, it seems like of all the people, of all the groups where understanding the role of community and team, um, like the NBA has like like a union, right? So they have like collective bargaining, like they have all of these things that center to community. And so I just like, what is, I, 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 I don't even know what my question no, is. No, this is like. What your question is talking about, though, comes back to, like, one of my biggest things in this. You said before, Courtney, about that locker room and, like, how you'd be mad as hell if someone in the locker room unvaccinated. I can't stop thinking about Carl Anthony Towns, who in the same week where his colleagues across the league were saying this at media day, you know, doing this, 
He had a SI profile about how he is managing and working through his grief. He lost eight family members. He got COVID himself. When he got COVID, he said to his niece and nephew, like, we're, you're not going to have to go to another funeral. And I think that that, to me, you ask about community, I ask mm-hmm. about empathy because what he dropped 50 pounds. Like, in co- like it has been a long recovery and multiple forms of grief and loss. And, and it's not just him, right? And that's the thing about COVID that, that really kind of stings, right? Is, like, that feeling, especially in the bubble and the wobble, right? It was like, we're all in this together. When people broke protocol, not only were they fined, but people were like, you're jeopardizing all of our ability to eat, like, to, to earn money, to do this, and our safety. It's why people opted out if they have families and they couldn't trust people. But it's, like, really remarkable to have him share that testimony that week and then have it literally spliced side by side with these other comments. And I think, for me, part of that is it goes back to that feeling of disposability and how empty that makes me feel. Because I've talked openly about watching Carl Anthony Towns like play, labor through this grief in real time. And I talked about how the camera would be up close on his face, marking his tear, commenting about his grief, how hard it is for him to play. And they shape it into a packaged narrative that we can all consume and and dig our kind of claws into. And it's real life. He's really dealing with that. Why do we have a camera in his face? What is essential about him laboring right now for us for entertainment? To me, that is what is really heartbreaking is it's like, even when you are vaccinated, right? Or even when you've had COVID, even when we go back just a year, Everything about this has been glib. And so it's hard because I understand a year later, right? Like these are the same players who risked their health because their their entertainment for others was essential. And I think it's hard to then have them become like the face of the anti-vax movement, which is not it. It's not. It's, it's really not. But one of the things about the bubble, when we go back to political education, right, they were sharing books. They were all together. They were having conversations. There was a way that that empathy, that camaraderie, that organization, you talk about the CBA, but like also we had a wildcat strike. That comes out of close proximity. That comes out of those labor conditions we saw last year. And it seems like one of the things we lost in the world kind of deciding that it was wide open and going again is we've lost some labor possibilities. Because I don't know, if if I was in, I would think it would be damn hard if they were in the bubble to say what they're saying and then ride an elevator with Carl Anthony Towns or break bread with him. You know what I mean? And so that's my kind of thought on it is that this kind of grind to restart, which is really to me an allegory for all of society where it has become each one on their own. Like I'm going to send my kids mass to school and hope your kids don't cough on them and know that their teacher, you know, their teachers are kind of have their hands tied and their government's not going to protect them, all this stuff. And it's just like, okay, our family can only do what we can. Like I can't rely, I can't afford to do that. And so it kind of feels mirroring to me. Um, and I mean, that brings us back to symbol, I suppose. Court? For me, like from the media angle, if we think about the fact that all the quotes that Kyrie and Jonathan Isaacs and Andrew Wiggins, all those folks versus the coverage or the elevation of Carl Anthony Towns in that piece, which is heartbreaking. Like I literally teared up reading that piece because he's, you can tell how much he's still grappling, right? Um, rightfully so, right? And how much there's a collective grief we're all feeling. All the folks we couldn't have services for, right? 
Um, and so for me, I thought I, it goes back to the same kind of thing with this algorithm, right? Why are we hearing those voices over Carl Anthony Towns? Or why are we thinking, why aren't we talking about long COVID, right? Instead, it's Bradley Beal saying, oh, I had COVID. I just couldn't smell anything. That is a major thing, That sir. is a neurological <laughs> condition. You, oh, you were sick. You were sick, right? And so instead, I'm thinking about someone like Asia Durr, right? Who had, you know, had COVID, has long COVID, may never play basketball again. I am, I'm praying for her and rooting for her. I want to see her back on the court. But I, I know that, you know, they did a real sports segment with her on HBO. And I didn't see that elevated the way that I think it should be talked about, right? Because long COVID, I think there's something in her, in her story that's really important for people. If we're going from the centric, your personal experience, right? There's something that's terrifying about what happened to her. And we can talk about that. But for me, it would be hard to not be vaccinated and, and, and have to be around Asia Durr or to be around Carl Anthony Towns because to me, that community aspect is so important. When we talk about the W and we talk about what the WNBA represents, it's very different. I wonder now if we had that same jersey option, right? What are the things that NBA players would be putting on their jerseys this year? Like my body, my choice, or I mean, they still say freedom. It just means a different. Yeah, thing. it's like freedom. You know, like <laughs> that's the thing things, about those words; they can mean what you equality, want them to be. Yeah, access, yeah. whatever they're saying, right? Versus in the W, everyone came together. They reached out to Breonna Taylor's family. They asked if they could all collectively wear her name on their jerseys, right? So that's when I draw the line between the individual and the community. All of these are opportunities, right? What does it mean to build with each other? What does it mean to have tough conversations, right? What is the leadership like in the MB? You know, I, I think a lot about leadership when we talk about these unions, right? We're talking about, you know, all of these leagues. We're talking about the NFL, NBA, WNBA, all unionized, right? And so thinking about the strength of unions or weaknesses, um, and then thinking about who's at the top of these spaces, who has a voice, who's creating space, right? So it's not about your officer position. It's about let's have, let's open some space and create space for Carl Anthony Towns. If he's our brother, right? If we are brothers in labor and love and life, right? Why, why would we not create those spaces? Why would we not have one unified voice on media day, right? And so they're just, to me, there's such a missed opportunity, right? To create space, to make change in some way. And even if it's just selfishly for the players that represent your league, even if you're not thinking about the millions of people that are listening and watching, just to show him care and love in this moment, right? That to me is what community would feel like, I think. I think there's also too, like a larger conversation that needs to be had. And whenever I finish thinking through it, I'll be ready to have it. Um, About how this conversation around COVID is so gendered. Like y'all are talking about um, some aspects of individualism and rugged individualism that I've observed as well. And I spend all day thinking about memes. And I was telling Courtney offline the other day that my cousin posted something that said, oh, the people who folded and got a vaccine shot are likely to be snitches or something like that, you know? (laughs) Right, right, right. You see how that does not follow, right? But the joke is that, you know, you're a follower or you're weak if you succumb to social pressure to get a vaccine. And like, it's really interesting to me to think about how like this misinformation is couched in terms of masculinity and how we're seeing that play out in different groups. Like, I mean, I I don't know what your kind of like colloquial, like observations of social media spaces are, but I'm seeing a lot of men share content that is connected to masculinity related to COVID. And I don't know what that is, but I'm still trying to think through it. And I think we're watching that play out in these conversations, you know, even, even in the ties 
you know, back to religion and thinking about bodily autonomy, like there, you, there's nothing in religion that says, or at least Christianity, which most of these folks that we're talking about are Christian, that is anti-vax, right? Um, in fact, the way I learned it is, you know, faith without work is dead. So you can't just have faith in not getting sick. You have to put some work behind that as well. But you can invoke religion to shut down a conversation. You can invoke masculinity to pressure others into not getting the vaccine and things like that. So I'm also just interested in this whole problem as kind of like a discursive exchange because I feel like it has a hold on like a certain subsection uh, of the Black community. And I, I'm just really trying to figure it out. Um, I want us all to get free and be healthy. <laughs> so... I think one of the ironic things about what you're saying, Brooklyn, is that, um, you know, the way that a lot of Black men in particular, and Americans generally speaking, learned that COVID was for real, for real, was when that game at an NBA game got canceled. Like, so it was like we come all the way back around. Right. And this is the discussion that we're having is about... You know, this 5%, which, of course, includes some superstars who I know for a fact are superstars and then everyone else. Um, (laughs) Right. And and that we're having a conversation about questioning the authenticity, the realness, the um, virulence of of this Mm -hmm. disease. Um, It just to me, it just kind of is mind blowing. Because my thoughts when y'all are talking about the Carl Anthony Towns thing, I'm like, well, masculinity is going to say, I can't have emotion and sympathy for my teammate in that way. Then the rugged individualism is going to kick in. I need to make sure my immune system is strong. And that's the way I, you know, so there's all these systems and, and ways that they're, that folks are thinking about COVID that's throwing all the traditional ways of understanding things out of the window. Like you would expect athletes to be more, you know, communal in particular ways, but the way the discourse is going in the social media spaces and also the up- offline public sphere is shaping that and changing it. Well, I, I think that that full circle moment you brought us to Candace is such a poignant point to end on because that was the symbol when basketball was disrupted, that like the world was really upside down. What I'll kind of leave it with is we've now seen, you know, LeBron come out and say, I am vaccinated and and I had to go through that process. And again, we're asking, you know, it would be really great if you use that platform to talk about what that process was and not just him, but the most informative threads have been about how you've gotten people in your life with vaccination hesitancy to that. I know my cousin who's, you know, very into hood healer and stuff like that. Like we had a lot of conversations and we talked about concerns and we talked about things and we read through things together and, you know, that led to vaccination. And I think that one of the things, if you need like a, a, a actionable nugget to take from this conversation is like, how do we make legible to folks in this disinformation, misinformation space, in these headlines produced by, you know, a very uh, monotone, monochrom- monochromatic media landscape in this in this politically fraught moment, right? How can we take actionable steps? Well, I think one of them is to like, Think about how do we reach out and and figure out how to reach the people in our orbit, in the orbits next to us, and and you know try to solve this global pandemic together and and make it safe uh, for everyone. And I really appreciate y'all joining me for this conversation to work through some of the nuance and complexity that I felt was so sorely lacking in other conversations. I always. Uh, love to be in conversation with y'all. So I appreciate you, Dr. Gibson, Dr. Smith, Dr. Cox. 
from me, Amira Rose Davis, this has been a interview roundtable for Burn It All Down. Flamethrowers, as always, burn on, not out, and we'll see you soon. This episode was produced by Tressa Verstag. Shelby Walden is our web and social media wizard. Burn It All Down is a part of the Blue Wire podcast network. Follow Burn It All Down on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen and subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and TuneIn. For show links and transcripts, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You'll also find a link to our merch at our bonfire store. And thank you, thank you, thank you to our patrons. Your support means the world. If you do want to become a sustaining donor to our show, visit patreon.com slash burnitalldown. We could not do it without you. It helps us to keep doing what we love and burning what needs to be burned. And as Brenda always says, burn on and not out. And